Good morning. <clears throat> As a third grade teacher, I had mastered the curriculum, at least for the most part. But today, as we open Hebrews 12, I have no mastery to offer. So last week, I listened to two local authors as they shared their recently published children's book. And the main character, who happens to be a little girl, uh, takes readers through one day in her life as she strives toward goals and learns the practice of persevering. Every few pages, she stops and asks, am I there? Not yet. Will I get there? You bet. Well, when understood within the framework of the gospel, each of us can rest in the assurance that our faith is being refined and being made complete, not by our flawed perseverance, but by the flawless perseverance of the author and perfecter of our faith. We are all poster children of not yet and simultaneously children of the promised you bet. Let's pray. Dear Father, each one of us is in need of you. And as we study Hebrews 12, I just ask that you prepare our hearts to be strengthened, to be encouraged, and to be challenged by your truth. May our hearts be directed into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In your name, amen. Hebrews 12.1 begins, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us. Hebrews 12 begins by immediately calling our faith into action, calling us to responsibility, calling us to tend to the training of our faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, not you should, let us. The writer of Hebrews includes himself with everyone else. In light of being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of us must lean into the training of our faith. Now, the faithful cloud of witnesses that's listed in chapter 11, they witness to us. God faithfully saw them through their circumstances then, and he remains the one faithful to see us through our circumstances now. In their lives, in their witnesses, we can see the possibilities of a life of faith. So as we study chapter 11 next week, It'll be evident that these witnesses didn't live pampered lives of faith. They were tortured, imprisoned, flogged, stoned. So they are uniquely qualified to provide credible testimony to faithfully enduring hardship. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw out everything throw off everything that hinders. The phrase, everything that hinders, literally refers to a bulk or a mass of something 
that may not necessarily be bad in itself. It may be something that's perfectly harmless, innocent, but when we carry it with us, it weighs us down as runners or it diverts our attention from the course. This verse asks us to thoughtfully remove, and depending on your uh, version that you're studying from, either by throwing off or laying aside. I personally like the mental image of flinging it to the ground and feeling lighter. Uh, But we're supposed to do that with anything that impedes forward progress on the path our Creator has marked out for us. Throw off everything that hinders. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles, clings so close. John MacArthur writes, Obviously, Quote, obviously, all sin is a hindrance to living for God's glory. And the reference here may be to sin in general. But the use of a definitive article, MacArthur says, the sin, seems to indicate a particular sin. And if there is one particular sin that hinders the race of faith, it is unbelief, doubting God. Doubting and living in faith don't go with each other. They contradict each other. Unbelief, MacArthur goes on, unbelief entangles a Christian's feet so that he cannot run. It wraps itself around us so that we trip and stumble every time we try to move for the Lord. When we allow the sin of unbelief in our lives, it's quite easy for Satan to keep us from running. This theme of unbelief appears throughout the book of Hebrews. You'll all remember back in Hebrews 3, I think that's the first time it's mentioned in the book. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, and I'm reading from this this instead of from this because the font I could control. I could control this font. Okay, so Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 would say, if I looked in here, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Unbelief clouds our eyes and keeps us from clearly seeing the witnesses, the hindrances, the sin itself. We're going to return to to consider unbelief a little more fully later, but now we're going to just work through the passage. So back to verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, the one set before us. John Wick Bowman writes, the Christian is not asked to run in a spectacular fashion. Rather, perseverance means dogged stick-to-itiveness. Dogged stick-to-itiveness. With the hopeful mindset of not yet, but you bet. James 1.3 says, You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That maturation process 
can be anything but attractive. Perseverance must finish its work through some really awkward, even ugly stages before it leaves you complete, not lacking anything. Perseverance is a way of life leading to incremental maturation. I loved Lori's uh, visual of justification immediately and then sanctification through some ugly, awkward phases, incrementally, not this. I mean, my graph, would it be great if our graph looked like this? Incrementally. That means sometimes it looks like this. Uh, uh, incrementally. At least that's my graph. Philippians 1, 5, and 6 says, In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From this day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus, who's carrying it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus or look to Jesus, the author and perfecter slash finisher slash completer of our faith. Our great cloud of witnesses includes Jesus. He lived a life of witness to God's faithfulness. Look to Jesus. To look means to trust. Fix our eyes of trust on Jesus. Our faith, our trust, is not to be placed in our own ability to throw off hindrances or throw off the sin or just to will ourselves to run with perseverance. Now, we're to trust Christ to perfect and complete our faith little by little along the path that's marked out for us. The second part of verse 2 explains why Jesus is a trustworthy object of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Through extreme suffering, Christ fixed his eyes on the joy set before him. That that joy was accomplishing his Father's will. That joy was providing our way to the Father. Our salvation is the joy set before him. In order to endure the cross, scorn its shame, and win victory over sin and death for those who believe, Christ looked at the joy that was set before him and trusted his Father's will. In verse 3, I saw a verb of cognition. Those other verbs were kind of let us throw off, you know, run. This one is a, 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 a mindset verb. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, such hostility against himself. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider, contemplate, reflect on, examine, review. This verse sets our mindset to review Christ's example so that we will not grow weary, and lose heart. We're instructed to consider Christ's suffering as proof that God designs his discipline to yield completion. I'm going to say that again. 
Christ's suffering is proof that God designs his discipline to yield completion. Christ's life was consistently and pervasively filled with enduring hatred, shame, and betrayal. Our fully God, fully man Savior experienced the full suffering of humanity. Starting with his birth in a stable, followed immediately by Herod seeking to kill the newborn king, Christ faced hostility and opposition from sinners. As an adult, his public ministry that was replete with opposition from sinners began with his baptism. The Spirit descended from heaven as a dove and rested on Christ. The audible affirmation of the Father came down from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What a spiritual mountaintop. And then... The scripture says, at once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. The Spirit who came down and rested on him sent him on his path marked out for him. Out into the desert to endure Satan's temptation for 40 days. 40 days of harsh conditions, no food, and wild animals. So how did Jesus endure and persevere? With each recorded proposition from the tempter, Jesus replies by reciting scripture. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Hebrews 2.18, you'll remember, says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see the strong connection between temptation and suffering? Haven't you experienced that? In our sufferings, we become tempted toward unbelief. During temptation, Christ modeled how to persevere. He replied with God's wisdom, defined in James 3.17 as, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Fixing our eyes on Christ's example, his life and teachings, that's what we're fixing our eyes on. We can't see him right now. He shows us through his Holy Spirit and the indwelling and through the life and teachings that we have recorded. We receive God's help by positioning ourselves in those things, in his life and his teachings. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence even though we're not yet right now. We can approach with confidence, the confidence of you bet, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now look to the Garden of Gethsemane with me to consider Christ. In his humanity, he is facing certain death. In his divinity, He's facing the certainty of bearing God's wrath for the sins of the world. And in the garden, Christ prays. He prays for God's glory to be revealed through the completion of the work God gave him to do. It wasn't easy work. And he prays for, the, for God to be glorified and the glory to be revealed through his completion of the work he was given. He prays for his disciples. 
who are sleeping. He prays for all future believers, for their unified witness to God's love to the world. And finally, Christ prays for God's will to be done. Hebrews 2.13 records Christ as saying, I will put my trust in him. Praying for God's will to be done requires placing your trust in God, which is exactly what Christ chose to do. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10 says, and I, I think this was quoted during our um, brunch, and it just hit me afresh, and I thought, I, I took a little note down. I believe it was you, Karen, who quoted, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to, whom he, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The phrase being made perfect kind of makes you pause and wonder. We're looking at fully God, fully man. How is it that he's being made perfect and learning obedience by what he suffered? The phrase mean, being made perfect means to complete, literally to accomplish, to finish, to fulfill. Christ lacked nothing. But his work was being accomplished and being made perfect through the completion of his Father's will. By offering himself for the joy set before him, he accomplished the way to the Father. He accomplished the means to our salvation. While learning obedience through what he suffered, Christ recited scripture. He poured out his heart in prayer. He placed his trust in his heavenly Father. He submitted to the Father's will, and he obeyed with his life. It is finished. This brings us up to all, all the way to verse 5, 5 and 6. And sa it says, And have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. That punishment is trains. He trains everyone he accepts as a son. One commentary I was reading posed this question. How much difficulty in our Christian life can be traced back to those three words? Have you forgotten? Perhaps it's some principle we remember in our minds, but we've forgotten with our hearts, and we must remember it again. Remediation. I'm remedial. This word of encouragement in verse 5 is twofold. First, it addresses believers as sons or daughters. That position, that standing, that relationship is unalterable. Think about it. If you're a son or a daughter in our case, there's no way to undo that relationship. You're always a son or daughter. You are forever part of the family. Hebrews 2.11, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Those justified by placing their faith in Christ become unalterably of the same family. Our standing as believers in Christ is the first part of the encouragement in verse 5. 
And the second encouraging aspect of the forgotten word, have you forgotten, that is as, as a son or daughter, you are loved. The Lord loves you so much that he desires to train you toward maturity and fullness. This training originates from God the Father's loving desire to purify and refine each son or daughter. Verses 7 through 10 of Hebrews 12 call us to endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, daughters. In the ESV, it says it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. John Piper writes, discipline is always connected to a deepening of faith. We're all prone to trust in human resources for our sense of security and happiness. So God sometimes strips us of all of those resources in order to move us to rest in God alone for our hope. Circumstances and, of hardship, circumstances of training, circumstances of discipline prompt a wide range of re reactions from us. Or I have provided the Lord with some entertaining wide range of reactions. Today's passage identifies and addresses the two kind of extremes. Verse 3 identifies a potentially damaging response to discipline. We might grow weary and lose heart. Last summer, Taylor Sutton taught from Psalm 42, and his sermon can be accessed on ZF's website. Anyway, Taylor pointed out that Psalm 42 demonstrates how, and these are his words, how to, quote, walk in the direction of hope during times of sorrow or hardship. Walking in the direction of hope. The psalm illustrates pouring out your soul to God as Christ did in the garden, and also preaching God to your soul, preaching God to your soul, as Christ did in the desert, in the wilderness, quoting scripture. Taylor described some ways of preaching God to your soul that were uh, deeply meaningful to me, and I, I, I envisioned myself talking to myself, which I, you may find hard to believe I sometimes do. It's a family trait. Um, but these are some of the ways he described of preaching God to your souls. Talking truth to yourself. God's truth to yourself. Reminding yourself of God's faithfulness in the past. Reciting God's attributes and recalling the cost of your family member position in Christ. Recalling that cost not to feel badly about it, not to feel guilty about it, but to embrace that cost as proof of the Father's deep love, of Christ's deep love. We don't always in the middle of hardship, feel fired up with joy. And that's when you return to what you know to be true. Whether you feel it or not. 
talk truth to yourself. Listen to others talk truth to you when you can't recall the truth to talk to yourself. Verse 9 introduces us to the opposite response. Instead of growing weary and losing heart, we're challenged to submit and live. Now, submitting to discipline becomes more natural after enduring a few cycles of hardship and proving that God truly produces abundant life post-hardship. A few cycles of that, and it becomes more natural to say, oh, we're entering remediation again. There's going to be something good on the other side of this if I allow myself to be trained by it. Verse 11 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, you bet, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Here's the big part. For those who have been trained by it. God designs his discipline to produce outcomes, outcomes for our good and our holiness. A harvest of righteousness and a harvest of peace are the result of enduring through the growing season. Growing seasons which may be long or dry or painfully awkward. The Moody Commentary says, the harvest of peace in this passage is less about harmony among believers and more about the tranquility of your heart, freeing one from anxiety caused by trials and discipline. That's the harvest of peace. If we submit to the training of the Father's discipline, verse 11 records the promised life enhancements, righteousness and peace, which together bring glory to God. Now I'm going to blame the next section on John Piper because he, it's, this is his question, I didn't write this, don't blame me. But it's a really good one. And this is the question. Quote, will you accept the mystery of God's providence in the pain in your life and be trained by it for the sake of good, of the good, of your good, and peace, and holiness, and righteousness, and life? Or will you kick against this chapter and demand in the season of suffering that God give a greater account of himself? I'm going to say the question again. Will you accept the mystery of God's providence in the pain in your life and be trained for it, by it, for the sake of good and peace and holiness and righteousness and life? Or will you kick against this chapter and demand in the season of suffering that God give a greater account of himself? Do we kick and demand or trust and submit? What we believe about God the Father and Christ our Savior frames our response. 
The sin that so easily entangles and clings so closely, the sin of unbelief, is insidious. This sin undermines our faith. Unbelief can cause us not to fully or functionally believe that Christ's work is sufficient enough to allow us to boldly approach his throne of grace. Unbelief can cause us not to fully or functionally live as God's workmanship and see ourselves that way because we're not yet. But if you believe the you bet part, you better functionally act and live your life as God's workmanship. Even when you're in an awkward phase. Unbelief sometimes begins with delighting in our own intellect and relying on what seems right to us without using the entirety of God's wisdom. Unbelief can stem from our desire to run our own life, make our own path, use our own free will to determine instead of following the path marked out for us by the one who created us. Unbelief can be the result of taking our eyes off the Lord, perhaps letting our eyes fixate on the trial, on the hardship, and then looking to and trusting our own solutions. We're going to close by turning to Luke chapter 1. And this passage testifies to the power of unbelief and the power of enduring hardship as the Lord's training ground. I'll wait for you all. Okay, as with any passage that's a narrative, when you skip over some of it, it just nearly kills me. Because the part that I'm going to skip in the middle, you have to go back to later because it ties so nicely, duh, uh, to what's before and after it. But anyway, Luke chapter 1, and if I sound like an elementary school teacher, I am. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Can't you see the tabernacle, the temple? Okay, so envision it. Here it comes. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been a heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth." 
Many of the people of Israel will be, will, uh, many of the people of Israel will be, will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Luke 1, 6 says... And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is pre-Christ, pre-New Covenant. Zechariah and Elizabeth's Old Testament faith had produced righteousness, not perfection. Their sins were covered by their faith and commitment to the statutes of the God of Israel. But verse 6 clearly demonstrates that unbelief is a problem even for the righteous. This godly man, this servant in the temple, struggled to take God at his word. Zechariah placed a limit on God. In his human understanding, he and Elizabeth were too old to have children. When faced with an seemingly impossible scenario, Zechariah placed finite limitations on an infinite God. These lyrics just kept coming to my mind. Even the impossible is your reality. Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, God. Zechariah's unbelief was connected with long-term disappointment, a long-term trial. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they must have come to terms with not having children. They hadn't walked away from serving, and they were obeying the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Stephen Cole writes, Thankfully, God in his grace pours out his blessings in spite of our doubts. God lovingly disciplines his servant Zechariah, but Zechariah's doubts could not thwart the sovereign plan of God. When Zechariah questions God's message, Gabriel says, oh, I love this part. I wish I'd played the part of Gabriel in the play of this, you know, because he stands up with such authority. The authority comes from God. He's not speaking on his own, but he says, I am Gabriel. I don't know if you know me or not, but I stand in the very presence of God. And I've been sent. I didn't come on my own. I've been sent by that God to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, the words I've been sent to say. 
which will come true at their proper time. The word of God always triumphs over the unbelief or doubt of man. God lovingly disciplines Zechariah for his unbelief in order to redirect the eyes of his heart to trust God anew. After months of silent introspection, listen to the end of the story. I love this. End of the story. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. I love this next part. They said to her, uh, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. So they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened. This was the day. It had been brought to pass. And his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah's words powerfully demonstrate submission to the Father's discipline. He was trained and refined by enduring. And after long and publicly awkward silent phase, Zechariah was brought to a new level of maturation, a newness of life, more abundant than before. He exited the training period more completely equipped to testify to the trustworthiness of God. May each of us submit our trust to the author of our faith as he perfects that faith. I'm going to close with a song, a brief song. And my hope is that, I'm going to sit down with you all, and my hope is that your heart will be able to join with mine in this prayer of submission.
I know you see me. I know you hear me, Lord. Your plans are for me. Goodness you have in store, so thy will be done, thy will be done, thy will be done.